Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. Every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Today, I have a very special bonus episode of LeVar Burton Reads for you. I recorded it in front of a live audience at the Now Hear This podcast festival in New York City. The story is called Goat, and it's from the new short fiction collection entitled Five Carat Soul by the best-selling author James McBride, and it is now out and available from Riverhead Books, an imprint of Penguin. Now, James received the National Book Award for Fiction in 2013 for his novel, The Good Lord Bird. In addition to being a terrific novelist, he's also a saxophonist, a composer. He's written several screenplays. He's done all kinds of things. The man is a veritable renaissance man. The story, Goat, is told from the perspective of a kid who goes by the name of Butter. And Butter plays in a funk band in Uniontown, Pennsylvania in the early 1970s. While I read, I was accompanied by live music from the cellist Trevor Exter, and afterwards I sat down with Mr. McBride himself for what I hope is an enjoyable conversation. We talked about the surprising twist in this story, about the community and the dignity of the people who inspired it, and about his life. I sincerely hope you enjoy If you're ready. Then let's take a deep breath. And let's begin. Goat by James McBride. When I was little, I used to look out my window and see a little boy running behind a man on a bicycle every morning. I seen that boy running behind that bike every day before I even knew him. Just some crazy boy running behind a man pedaling a bicycle. He'd run behind the man all the way to the corner, and when the man got to the dirt road that run up the hill and out of the bottom going towards downtown, that boy would stop running and watch him ride off. Then, turn and run to school. That's my friend, Go. He plays the drums in the five-carat soul bottom bone band. The man on the bicycle is his daddy, who everybody calls Mr. Popcorn. Goat is a dark-skinned boy who walks pigeon-toed and laughs all the time and likes to make jokes. He's a pretty good drummer for somebody who's 12. And he plays too fast. Everything Goat does is fast. He talks fast, he eats fast, but mostly he runs fast. He's the fastest kid in all the bottom. Everybody knows Goat got speed. I think he got it from running after his daddy all the time. I don't know why they call his daddy Mr. Popcorn, for I have never seen him eat no popcorn. 
Goat told me his daddy's real name is Irving Evans. He's a little chocolate-skinned man with shiny eyes and a big smile. Mr. Popcorn works way downtown in a yard where there's big oil trucks that say waste oil on the sign. He rides his bike to work every day, and he works them pedals on that thing good and keeps it moving. It's a dandy bike. It's red and blue with stingray handlebars on it and a banana seat. It's put together from a bunch of different bike parts from Mr. Popcorn's yard. He got a ton of junk in that yard. Bricks, bike parts, tires, and real chickens. He even had a goat in there once, a real goat. Which is how Goat got his nickname, for he used to have to feed it. But the city made him get rid of it. That whole family is country. Mr. Popcorn got three boys, Minnie Jug, Tori, and Goat. And they is all fast. Minnie Jug is the oldest. He's like a bigger, meaner goat. He stole my bike once, and it would have ended up in Mr. Popcorn's junkyard until Goat told me, I seen my brother Minnie Jug riding your bike. I ran out and I caught Minnie Jug on it, and he said, oh, I just borrowed it. And he gave it back to me along with a dime, so I wouldn't tell my mother. Minnie Jug played baseball with us sometimes. He could hit that ball a mile, too. But he quit when he was a teenager and got too old. Next come Tori. Tori likes girls and cigarettes. We used to call him half boy, half man, because Tori had a mustache and beard when he was only 12, or said he was 12. He was in my same class, but I ain't seen him in a while. They say he's in the job corps, which is like jail, except all the kids ain't bad. I asked Goat once, where's Tori? And Goat just shrugged and said, Tori messed up. Which makes me think Tori ain't in no job corpse after all. Goat is the youngest of the three. He ain't like his big brothers. He don't steal. He don't fight. He don't chase girls. He ain't never mad. He just runs. I never seen nobody run like Goat. It's like a different person climb into him when he runs. He leans forward and gets low and just flies along like a diesel train. Everybody knows Goat is fast. People from all around the bottom come to race him. He raced Bunny's daddy last summer and beat him, and he was only 11. Bunny's daddy got mad and said, give me half a blockhead start next time, and if you win, I'll give you $20, but if you lose, you pay me a dollar. I ain't got no dollar. Goat said, but Goat gave him a head start anyway, took his money. <laughs> One of the sixes, a boy named Junior, came around once and said, I can beat Goat. Junior's 16 and plays football in high school. He's a quiet, light-skinned boy with big, thick leg muscles. When the six beat us at something, Junior's one of them that does it the most. Last Halloween, when they beat us in our yearly egg fight, Junior ran me down and hit me with an egg so hard, it felt like a bullet. Well, Junior raced Goat and got beat too. They had a big track meet out in Falls Point with the white kids and everything. And they threw Goat in there and he beat everybody in the city in the 100-yard dash except for one guy. 
He didn't even have sneakers. He borrowed Dex's sneakers. Only problem was, he didn't have no birth certificate, so they threw out his win. Our school didn't have no track coach. We just had Miss McIntyre. She teaches English, and she saw a goat running around the schoolyard and said, that boy's fast. And when she heard about a track meet over in Falls Point, she put him in her car and drove him over there to race in it. After he came in second place, they asked Miss McIntyre, where's his birth certificate? And Miss McIntyre said, I don't have no birth certificate for him. So he didn't get no medal because they couldn't prove he was 12. Goat was disappointed and told Miss McIntyre he wasn't going back to run no more. But Miss McIntyre said, go home and get your birth certificate. We'll have it next time. There ain't going to be no next time, Goat said. Why? My mama ain't got no birth certificate, Goat said. We'll see about that, she said. Miss McIntyre's a nice lady, but she don't know nothing about the bottom. She's young and brown-skinned. She wears nice dresses and has nice glasses and a button nose that's so cute. Sometimes, when I fall asleep at night, I think about Miss McIntyre. She does her hair in an afro, like Cicely Tyson, that famous actress I seen on TV once, or Angela Davis, who I don't know exactly who she is, but they say she's got guts and ain't scared of white people. One time, my sister Sissy asked Miss McIntyre, where's your perm? Miss McIntyre gave her a book with a picture of a lady named Harriet Tubman who freed the slaves or some such kind of thing. Sissy looked at the picture and said, she ain't got no perm neither. And Miss McIntyre got mad. Miss McIntyre couldn't get it out of her head about Goat not getting the medal and not having his birth certificate. She kept bothering him about it and bringing it up and he kept saying, I forgot. So one day she said, I'm going to write your mother a note. Write all you want. It ain't going to do no good, Goat said. Well, why not, she said. She ain't worrying about no birth certificate, Goat said. I'll take care of it. I don't know where Miss McIntyre lived, but she sure don't live in the bottom. Because that very weekend, she came to the bottom and drove right through our baseball field. It ain't a real field. We call it the triangle. It's actually three dirt rows that come together at the bottom of a hill where you first enter the bottom. The triangle is perfect for baseball. But it's also the only entrance to the bottom if you're driving. Most cars roar through there because the drivers is either from the bottom and want to get home, or they ain't from the bottom and want to get home in one piece. Miss McIntyre creeped through there at 10 miles an hour in a shiny little red car on a hot Saturday. And with her pretty little purse on the passenger seat next to her and the window open so somebody could reach in there and snatch it. We was playing the six when she come through and she bumped right over home plate where they was and stopped. All them sixes stared at her when she stopped, sitting there in her little red car wearing one of her nice school dresses squinting through the windshield looking for addresses. There ain't none in the bottom with her side window open, basically begging somebody, anybody, to snatch her purse off that seat and make themselves some money. 
I think they were so surprised to see someone so stupid come through there, it froze them. Them sixes, Tito, Toy Boy, Junior, Lightbub, stood there holding their bats with their eyes popping out their heads, and she sat there a minute. Then, quick as you can tell it, she was on the move again, roaring off home plate. She turned one way, then the other, backed up once, then rolled over the pitcher's mound where Bunny was standing holding the ball. She almost hit him. Then kept going past him and rumbled over second base where Dex was. Then bumped past me at shortstop. Then finally drove out to left field where Goat was. The left field of the triangle ain't really no left field. It's really Parsons Road. It's a pretty far distance from home plate, but that's where the six mostly clobber the ball when we pitch it to them. That's why we put Goat out there. He runs down their gigantic home runs and catches them for outs. But he gets bored out there sometimes and stands around daydreaming staring up at the sky. He was doing just that when Miss McIntyre drove past him. She was squinting with her glasses, swiveling her head back and forth, looking for addresses, and had just about passed him when he glanced in the car, then done a double take when he seen who it was. He stared as she passed, and when her car reached the corner of Parsons and the turn left to his house, he dropped his glove and said, I gotta go, and took off towards home. That ended the game right there. We can't beat them without goat. Plus, it started a fight. Each team switched gloves when they took the field because not everybody had a glove, and goat was using Lightbulb's glove. He had it in his hand when Miss McIntyre drove past, and he threw Lightbulb's glove to the ground and ran off. Lightbulb saw goat running and said, One of you girls better bring my glove. And Bunny, who was pitching for us, said, Get your own glove, caveman. And we laughed. And them sixes charged, which meant we had to show them sixes who's boss. We did what the five-carat soul-bottom bone band does best. We scattered. <laughs> Quick. Bunny and Beanie and the rest of them made it safely to Bunny's house, while me and Dex took off from Mrs. Wilson's yard to cut through and catch up with Goat. We had never seen no teacher in the bottom before, especially not one so pretty like Miss McIntyre. We loved us some Miss McIntyre. We got there just in time to see Goat beat Miss McIntyre to his house. Goat acted like he ain't seen her and zipped inside the front door and slammed it behind him just as she pulled up. By the time she parked and got out and walked through all them bike parts and weeds and chickens to knock at the front door, that house seemed quiet as a mouse. My cousin Herbert lives two doors away from Goat, and his family ain't never home, so me and Dex crouched behind the steps at cousin Herbert's house to listen and see what would happen. Miss McIntyre knocked at the door. Nobody comes, so she knocked again, louder. Finally, a voice hollered out, We gave it the office! That was Goat, trying to talk like he was sounding like a grown-up. I need to speak to you, Seymour, Miss McIntyre said. <laughs> Me and Dex laughed. It was funny to hear Goat's real name spoke in the bottom Ain't nobody here but us chickens, Goat said. Well, that just got Miss McIntyre stirred up. She banged at the door harder this time, and then finally the door cracked open, and Goat's mother, Mrs. Shays, peeped out the side of it. I don't know Mrs. Shays well, but I seen her a lot when my grandma died because she works in the cafeteria the old Carver Hospital. 
She's a tall brown lady who keeps her hair neat permed and got a wide nose. She peeked out the side of the door with her eyes and said, What he done now? Are you Seymour's mother? Miss McIntyre asked. If you mean is I the someone who teaches him not to brush his teeth and clean his nose out in public, yes, I am his mother, Mrs. Shea said. But if you from social services and come out here fending and proving and pretending you know everything, which must be a terrible strain on a person, then I ain't nobody. So you are his mother then, Miss McIntyre said. If it looked like a buzzard and smelled like a buzzard, miss, it ain't catfish. Does that mean you his mother? Is you social services or not? Course not, Miss McIntyre said. I am his teacher. Well, whatever he done wrong, I'll straighten him out, Mrs. Shea said, and she slammed the door shut. Miss McIntyre banged on the door again. Nobody opened it, so she hollered out, Seymour's done nothing wrong. Mrs. Shays wouldn't open the door, but she hollered from inside. If he ain't done no wrong, stop banging in my door. I need to talk to you. You're hurting my door, miss. I paid for it. Get along, please. This is about a scholarship. A what? Money. That done it. The door cracked open. Mrs. Shays stood there with her cafeteria uniform on. There wasn't no screen door, just some steps leading up to it, so when Mrs. Shays opened the door full, she was standing above Miss McIntyre like a giant. Behind her, the house was dark. Goat's people didn't have electric most times. Mostly, they light their house with candles and flashlights, but nobody makes fun of them because Mr. Popcorn ain't the only one in the bottom who can't pay his electric. Miss, he didn't mean to steal no scholarship, Mrs. Shea said. You ain't got to get him arrested. I already told you I'll clear him of it. No need to call no police. It occurred to me that Mrs. Shays didn't know what a scholarship was. Miss McIntyre said he didn't steal a scholarship. He needs one. Well, I can't afford it, whatever it is. It's a free education, Miss McIntyre said. Then she explained about how Goat was the second fastest runner in the whole city and should get a medal for that track meet he did in Falls Point and maybe could get into a special high school for free college because he ran so fast. Mrs. Shays lightened up now, listening. Then she said, you say he can get all that on account of his running? Yes, he runs very fast. Well, he probably got that from his daddy, Mrs. Shays said. Was he fast too, Miss McIntyre said. Mrs. Shays sighed. That man got feats of clay now, miss. Why are you poking around in my business? What's in it for you? Uh, nothing. I, I just need his birth certificate so he can run in track meets here in the city. Why can't he do that now? They need to know his age from his birth certificate. Why would my boy lie about his age? Miss Shays, there are several coaches from some good high schools looking at him. If they're so high and mighty, why can't they get his birth paper? They're not his mother. Only his mother can do that. Miss, you yelling down an empty hole. I ain't got no birth papers for him. I'm his mother. 
He's my son. That's all. I got no birth papers for him. You get them from where he was born. That would be Kentucky. They have colleges in Kentucky, too, Miss McIntyre said brightly. I bet they'd love a boy like Seymour on one of their college teams. I wouldn't send him to Kentucky for all the lollipops in the world, Mrs. Shea said. I ain't never going back there. You don't have to go there. Just write a letter to the state. The state keeps all of the hospital birth records. Seymour wasn't born in no hospital, Mrs. Shea said. He was born in a house. That made us laugh. Dex blurted out, goat was hatched like an egg. By now, we had parked our butts on the stoop of my cousin Herbert's house in full view of them so we could hear it all. Then we looked at the door and seen Goat peeking behind his mother's dress. He seen us laughing, and when he seen that, he came out from behind his ma and said, Miss McIntyre, I don't want no scholarship. That's crazy, Miss McIntyre said. Don't you want to go to a good school? No. What do you want to do then? want to get a bike and ride to work like my daddy. Well, that got Mrs. Shays hot. She turned around and slapped Goat right across the back of his head. Pow! Boy, I'll drop your britches and warm your two little toasters right here. I don't want to quiet, she said. She turned to Miss McIntyre. What's that birth paper called again? A, a birth certificate. You write a letter to the state or the county and they'll send it to you, Miss McIntyre said. Even if he was born in a house? Yes, they file records somewhere. Ain't nobody filed nothing for me in Kentucky. I picked cotton. That's all the filing I was doing. I filed cotton in a bag. It's state law to pick cotton. No, to file birth certificates. They have to do it. You just write them and ask them, and they'll send to the proper county records birthing office for the cens- or the census office, and the county will find it. Mrs. Shays sighed. That sounds awful complicated, she said. But don't you want him to go to college? Sure I do, Mrs. Shays said. But writing letters to counties and all, I don't know about them things. Plus, we're talking Kentucky. This is Fayette County, Pennsylvania, miss. White folks mostly follows the laws up here. In Kentucky, white folks got all the mojo and say-so. They won't give me the time of day down there. It's a simple letter. Takes ten minutes to write. I got too many problems to set about writing some old letters, Mrs. Shea said. What kind of problems would stop you from getting your boy a good education? Miss McIntyre asked. Later on, I think Miss McIntyre was sorry she asked that. She was a young thing and didn't know. Only a fool would ask somebody in the bottom to spill their guts about their troubles unless they got a year to sit and listen. Mrs. Shays started right in. Well... Popcorn was hauling lumber down in Mason County, and on and on she went. And before long, it was dark 
And poor Miss McIntyre was sitting out there on goat's front steps in her pretty little dress, barefoot now, because she'd taken her high heels off. And by then, three hours had passed, and goat had got bored and cut out for the soft drink factory with Dex to see if they could scare up some empty bottles to sell, while I sat there alone on my cousin's steps listening, because I liked Miss McIntyre. <laughs> I sat there a long time hoping Miss McIntyre or Goat's mom would at least notice me and say hello or feel sorry for me and wave me over and offer me a glass of water or something because I was so thirsty, I'd have been happy to drink some of that nasty chitlin-smelling water they probably drink in Goat's house. But they never done that. Mrs. Shays talked the whole time, and after a while, she come out the door and sat next to Miss McIntyre on the steps, still spilling her guts. She told Miss McIntyre about how Goat's dad... Mr. Popcorn married her back in Mason County when she was 17 and rode her around on his bike handlebars when they was young and happy. But after they got up here to Uniontown, Pennsylvania in the bottom and he got laid off at the steel mill, he rode his bike home from work every night from Monday to Thursday and don't look at her twice and every Friday he gets dead drunk like clockwork and she has to throw him out the house and how he comes back on his bike every Sunday saying he's sorry and promises to change and she lets him in again and how he's been doing that same bit for years while she can't pay the light bill and can't get goat no new sneakers or dungarees or nothing. And I got to thinking about goat, how he really never did have nothing and how raggedy he always dressed, being poorer than most folks in the bottom who make fun of him for being country when they is altogether pretty country themselves. I heard more than I wanted to hear. Miss McIntyre listened the whole time and didn't say hardly nothing but, uh-huh, uh-huh. And once in a while, she offered little suggestions and stuff, and I could tell by the look on her face that she got more than she bargained for. She was hanging in there until the story got worse when Mrs. Shays started talking about how Tory got put in jail for robbery. And when I heard that, I said to myself, I knew he wasn't in no job corpse. And then finally, Mrs. Shays busted into tears and said, the army wants my boy. They want my boy to join up and I don't know what to do. He's my best boy. Seymour? No, Minnie Jug. Who's Minnie Jug? Sylvester's his name. They call him Minnie Jug. My oldest boy, he's 19. The army wants him. They sent a letter wanting to send him to Vietnam. That's where Mrs. Cruz's boy got killed and Ellie Boyer's son too. Both of them dead over there. Killed. Fighting some white man's war. And now they want my son too. She boo-hooed some more. Miss McIntyre sat quiet for a minute and then said, I'd like to see that letter from the army. You have it? No. Where is it? Minnie Jug got it. But it ain't no use, Miss, Mr. Shays said. I can't read no way. I know a few wee old letters and can write my name, but that's it. That's why I can't get no birth paper for Seymour. And I can't write the army to ask about my son. I'm in a hard position. Then she boo-hooed a little more. Miss McIntyre didn't say a word for a good while. She coughed once or twice, then drew a handkerchief from her pretty little purse and gave it to Mrs. Shays, who wiped her face. Then she said, 
You should have told me that first. That would have saved us some time. Just because you can't read doesn't mean you're not smart. You're a bright, bright woman. When you have been spit on, Mrs. Shea said, it don't matter much what else you think you know. What about your husband? He can't read neither. And even if he could, he ain't no real help to me. I thank you for trying to help my boy, miss. But Seymour ain't right for no scholarship, no how. I put him in God's hands. With that, she got up and turned to go in the house, opened the door, and stepped inside. Miss McIntyre said, there's alternatives, you know. Mrs. Shays turned around. You got a good heart, young lady. But if you fool around with us colored folks here in the bottom, you'll end up dwelling in sadness. I know how to handle my boys. Popcorn, too. Miss McIntyre nodded and rose up and put her shoes on, then looked around. It was dark all around the bottom now, pitch black, because there's no street lights. But up the hill past the triangle, you could see the lights of downtown Uniontown far off, the tall buildings all lit up and looking rich and happy. Get that letter from the army and send it to school with Seymour, Miss McIntyre said, and tell Seymour the name of the town where you had him when he was born. I don't think that Seymour knows how to write it, Mrs. Shea said. He can write all right, Miss McIntyre said, and he can spell too, because I taught him. Then she got in her car and drove off. Mrs. Shays watched Miss McIntyre's taillights till they vanished and still kept staring long after they was gone, just looking into the dark. Then she glanced over and seen me staring, sitting on my cousin Herbert's stoop, then went inside her house, which was dark now, lit by candles inside, like it most always was. Hey, y'all, there is a new podcast from our friends over at the Stitcher Network. It's a serious and in-depth look at the story of Heaven's Gate. Now, you might remember Heaven's Gate from the footage that was all over TV, the uniforms, purple shrouds, the black Nikes, and people who believed that they'd be taken to heaven in a UFO. Well, there is so much more to the story than that. The new podcast, Heaven's Gate, talks to people who lost loved ones and people who still believe in the cult in order to understand the cult's mysteries. Whatever you think you know, prepare to be surprised. It's hosted by Glenn Washington, and if you've heard his other show, Snap Judgment, you know this will be good. Plus, Glenn even grew up in a cult himself. Hear it for yourself. Subscribe to Heaven's Gate, the podcast for free, wherever you listen, like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Plus, Hear episodes one week early and ad-free with Stitcher Premium. Now, let's get back to our story. Maysville. That's the name of the town where Goat was born. Miss McIntyre found it out after Goat brung that name to school on a piece of paper. 
She got busy with him and kept him after school, and they wrote to Maysville, Kentucky, and they sent Goat's birth certificate right to Miss McIntyre at school. Miss McIntyre took that birth paper the day she got it straight down to Falls Point where Goat should have got that medal. She showed it to the people over there and said, I told you he was only 12. They still didn't give Goat no medal, but one of them white coaches down there from one of them big white high schools said, I'll take that kid under my track team right now. But he had to wait till the school year was over when Goat could be in high school. So Goat stayed in school with us. That coach wanted Goat so bad, he let Goat practice with his track team anyway and showed Goat some things about running the 100-yard dash. And Goat took them things the coach showed him and run for our school. He was the only member of the George Washington Carver Middle School track team. He didn't have no real track shoes, just some old basketball sneakers he got from someplace, and he didn't have no real track uniform neither. Miss McIntyre was his coach. She coached him by getting him a uniform from the school basketball team, and he runned in that. That was all the coaching he got. And he tore him up all over the city and in Fayette County, too. He became a star. Well, as much as the bottom scene, for we never had too much in the way of stars, unless you count Reverend Jenkins, who gets in the news by starting as much trouble as he stops. By the time somebody in church stole all the Christmas club money and a cop came in to investigate it and the church secretary, Mrs. Friday, was showing him where the hiding place was in the church basement when she fell down the basement stairs and broke her leg and knocked over a kerosene heater, which started a fire down there, and the cop picked her up on his back and brung her out. That don't seem heroic, really, unless you know that Mrs. Friday weighed about 400 pounds and the cop weighed 200 pounds. So that was 600 pounds altogether that he lifted and brung up the stairs. That was a white cop, too. And when Mrs. Friday got well, she told everybody what happened, and the newspapers got hold of it and made a big deal about it. And that church put so much chicken and punch in that cop and all his friends when they came around off duty one Saturday afternoon, nobody knowed who was who. For somebody from the church had spiked the punch with moonshine and everybody knew it and the whole bunch of them was staggering around drunk and playing cards and telling lies until Mrs. Friday's husband threw up and said if they'd have thrown his smooth Georgia white lightning in the punch instead of Mr. Johnson's old South Carolina hooch, which ain't nothing but gasoline, nobody would have got sick off it and the cops said don't say no more and they left. But wasn't too many star kids from the bottom, mostly because the kids from the bottom don't get far enough in school to stay in sports, or they move away, or they end up working jobs, or go to jail by the time they is old enough to really get some kind of scholarship, and that included Minnie Jug. He was working a job down at the same waste oil place as his daddy when Goat asked him about that letter to join the army, for Minnie Jug was the one who had it, not his mother. Because Minnie Jug could read. His ma and pa couldn't. At first, Minnie Jug wouldn't give it to Goat. Minnie Jug is more serious than Goat. He don't laugh as much. He's bigger and taller and could have been good in sports for he has cut something serious with muscles. But he's kind of hard. He told Goat, I ain't showing no letter to no teacher. But a funny thing happened to Goat after he got that birth certificate, something bigger than even winning track meets and all. He started getting something he never had before. He got confidence. He started reading books Miss McIntyre got him about 
other people in track, like a white man named Glenn Cunningham, who they said would never walk because his legs was burned up in a fire, but he ran anyway and became a world champion. And Tommy Smith, a black man who broke the world record in the Olympics and raised his fist for black people on the medal stand. Goat got interested in all them things. So when Minnie Jug said, I ain't showing no letter to no teacher, Goat stayed on him and said, why you want to go to the army and make mama all worried up? He stayed on him so much, Minnie Jug gave him the letter and Goat brung it in to Miss McIntyre. I was in class that day, for Goat walked to school with me and Dex most mornings after he run behind Mr. Popcorn and seen him off to work, and when we walked to school, he showed us the letter from the army. It wasn't much nothing to look at. It was just a little letter that said, Sylvester says so-and-so and a bunch of numbers and such, and when he gave it to Miss McIntyre, she read it, and Goat watched her close. Well, it says he's 198, she said. It doesn't mean he has to go into the army. It means he has a chance, a good chance, that they might call him up for service, but they haven't yet. So go back and tell your ma, we're going to try some things, but I need to write for all the birth certificates of all your brothers. I ain't got but two, Minnie Jug and Tori. All right, tell her I'm going to write and get those. Goat done that, and Mrs. Shays agreed, for Miss McIntyre wrote the letters, and Mrs. Shays signed them, so Miss McIntyre sent them letters off to Kentucky, and while we was waiting for them birth certificates to come back, Goat kept winning. He cooked like that the next few weeks, getting better and better, winning all the time. He growed into a star in Uniontown, beating boys from all the high schools in town. And by the time spring came around, he was the best in all Fayette County, and now they was talking about making him run up in Pittsburgh, the big city, racing the big boys, a boy from the bottom. Unbelievable. And when they had that same track meet in Falls Point that next winter, the place where it all started, he run against them again, and that one guy who beat him before in the 100-yard dash, and he beat the pants off that guy. And this time, they did give Goat a medal. I was there when he run that race. He was so excited after that race, he didn't know what to do. It was a small race for him, really. By then, he was beating lots of faster boys, but that's where it all started. And he wanted a lot of us to see it. His mom wasn't there, of course, neither was his daddy. They was too busy working, but me and Dex seen it, and Miss McIntyre, because she drove us there in her little red car and took us out for ice cream afterwards. Then after ice cream, she drove us home to the bottom and dropped us off at the Triangle, that very place where she had once drove through and stopped our game. Goat was so excited to show his ma his medal he had one foot out the door before Miss McIntyre even stopped the car. You ought to come see my ma, he said to Miss McIntyre. That's okay, she said. Tell your ma I'll write her a note soon. You can show it to her. Why don't you come see her now? She's probably home from work. But Miss McIntyre had a funny look on her face. No, Seymour, it's fine. Tell her I have some more information about your brother, Minnie Jug. Is it bad news? No, Seymour. 
actually, it's, it's good news. But you go home. I'll send her a note soon. So, Goat got out and run home. Then me and Dex got out, and Dex vanished to his house. But I lingered. I seen something in Miss McIntyre's face that worried me. So I headed around the corner, doubled back, and stood behind a pole in the dark to watch her leave, just to make sure she was safe getting out the bottom. But she didn't leave. She sat there at the wheel of her car in the middle of the triangle, staring into the dark. Then she'd done a U-turn and pointed the car towards the hill that led out towards the city. And then she stopped again, staring out. The car didn't move. It sat there, the motor purring. Her glasses was the only thing I could see in the dark reflecting off the dashboard lights. And them glasses didn't move. Seemed like she was thinking about something. Finally, she put the car in gear and drove up the hill and was gone. I watched her taillights go, wishing I could have gone with her, for I started feeling love for that woman at that time, a real love, and it was the first time. Thing is, when somebody's thinking about love in the bottom, mostly nothing good comes of it. Love comes and goes, they say, but understanding? In the bottom, understanding don't come easy. It comes hard, and it don't ever feel good, neither. At the end of the next day, Miss McIntyre called me aside after the bell had rung to finish the day and said, stay here. I said, I got to walk Sissy home. Dex and Seymour can walk her home. She told them, and they'd done it. And after everybody left, she said, I need you to do something for me. She was sitting at her desk, and I walked over. She reached inside a drawer and gave me a fat envelope. Take this over to Mrs. Shays and give it to her. I said, what is it? It's called none of your business. <laughs> is it about Minnie Jug? He got to fight in the army now? Just give it to her. If she asks you to read it, read it to her. Why me? Because you're the best reader in this class. And you're a nosy body. <laughs> what did I do wrong? Listening to other people's conversations is what you did wrong. Just give her this letter. What is it? It's about Sylvester. Who's that? Minnie Jug. Don't give it to him. This is for his mother, not him. She's Goat's Ma, too. Can't Goat give it to her? Miss McIntyre, for the first time ever, looked a little confused. It's a favor to Goat, too. Okay? Why I got to go do Goat's business, Miss McIntyre? She looked at me stern. Because you're so concerned about everybody's business. I didn't mean nothing that day you was at the goats. Then why'd you sit there three hours listening to me and Mrs. Shays? I just... I, I, I didn't know what to say. 
I wanted to say, I sat there because I love you, Miss McIntyre. I want you to take me out of the bottom and make me your son. And then later on, I can be your husband and live downtown in, in the city where the lights are bright and we can drive your nice red car. And when I go to sleep at night, I can wake up and see you first thing in the morning, the way I see you in my dreams at night, looking so pretty with your glasses off. But then all them thoughts made me scared. Me and her alone in the room after school suddenly didn't seem like so much fun. She was staring at me, sitting close to me at her desk, all bothered and serious, and I could smell her perfume and see her makeup and all, and them big brown eyes and them pretty glasses was looking on, and that cute little button nose and all the rest of her right there, and I could see she was bothered about something inside, and that got me plain scared of the whole deal. I would take it myself, she said, but... I'm in too deep now as it is. You done something wrong? I asked. Of course not, she said. She thought a moment, then said, tell you what, take it to her job at the hospital. Tell her it's from me. Tell her she needs to find someone who's not in her family to read it to her. Can you do that? Yes. And can you promise me not to breathe a word of this to anyone? Though I know that's probably not going to work, she sighed. She seemed to be saying that last part to put herself more than me. She looked so sad and pretty then. It was all I could do not to leap up and declare, It's all right, Miss McIntyre. I can protect you. I won't tell a soul. I swear it's me and you against the whole world now. No matter what, and I will do anything, including jump out this window into the ocean before I tell a soul. But I didn't do nothing but nod and say, Okay, that's good, she said. And for your trouble and for keeping it a secret, I'll give you two whole dollars. She leaned over at her desk and opened a drawer to give me them double dollars, which gave me a chance to peek at some other doubles, them two brown bunnies paired up beneath her blouse, knocking about as she fumbled for her purse, that same pretty purse that sat in the seat of her car as she drove past the triangle that day just before last summer. I ain't worth two cents, is what I thought to myself, for this is the very thing they be hollering about in church. I had a fit with myself, standing there, watching her knockers. But she wasn't paying me no mind. She had opened the purse and pulled out her wallet and was fumbling around through it. And that's the last I seen of her that day. For by the time she had flipped through the tiny papers and books and matches and little papers and got to the crumpled dollar bills in that wallet and was holding them up in her hand... I was out the door. I had snatched the thick letter envelope off the desk and was gone. My grandma died at the old Carver Hospital, so I know it pretty good. I know the cafeteria exactly where Mrs. Shays worked because me and my sister Sissy was in there a bunch of times with my mom while she sat at a table sobbing and carrying on during my grandma's last days. Mrs. Shays was nice to my ma then. She brought her coffee and said nice things and sat down and prayed for my ma and my grandma and all. My ma likes Mrs. Shays. I found Mrs. Shays where she always is, serving food behind the counter at the buffet line where people bring their trays to get food. 
I got in line, and when I reached her, she nodded hello. And I stuck my face over the counter and whispered in a low voice, I got to talk to you a minute, Mrs. Shays, about Miss McIntyre. She said, wait a minute till I get a break and give me a piece of cake. I sat in the cafeteria and waited till she was clear. She came over to the table and sat down and looked at me a long time. Finally, she said, do I need to talk to your ma about you being a busybody and poking your nose in other people's business? No, Mrs. Shays, I said, and I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to see Miss McIntyre. Don't you see her enough? Well, yes, ma'am. I've seen her today in school. She said to give you this. I handed her the letter. She took the envelope and opened it up and pulled out the pages. She held the pages upside down first, then turned them the right way, and glanced around the room to make sure no one was watching. Finally, she said, You know this don't mean nothing to me, Butter. Miss McIntyre said to tell you, Get somebody to read this who ain't no relation to you. What's it about? She said it's about goat and mini jug. You sure? Yes, ma'am. She glanced around the room. Okay, she said. I'll give you a dollar to read it to me. I get paid Thursday. That's in two days. Mrs. Shays, I thank you for it, but I don't want your money. I already stuck up my nose too far into you and Miss McIntyre's business now, and if my mother finds out, she'll whip on me so bad no amount of dollars is going to help me. I won't do it no more. I learned my lesson. I swear to God. She smiled a little bit. Most of us has a desire to mind other folks' business, she said. That's the child in you, Butter, not the man. But every child has to learn grown-up things in some form or fashion. So, I guess this is your time, for I needs to know what's in here. I got 10 minutes before I got to get back to work. Can you read all these pages in 10 minutes? She handed me the pages. I looked them over. I think so, I said. Go on then. So I did. The first was a letter Miss McIntyre had wrote to the Army saying that according to the law, if the Army wants to draft a boy who is the oldest boy in the house and his ma is a widow and that boy is the breadwinner and caretaker of all helping his ma, then Rule 7A, Clause B, or whatever, that boy couldn't be drafted no kind of way because he got to help his ma, who's a widow. She had wrote the letter and signed it as Mrs. Shays, and the army wrote back to her and said, we agree, and would review it, and so on and so forth. But it looked like Minnie Jug was in the clear. So... My boy Minnie Jug is safe then, Mrs. Shea said. I didn't say nothing, for that letter from the army had said, if the ma is a widow, Mrs. Shea's wasn't no widow. Popcorn was her husband, but I already seen she was a lot smarter than me, and even if she couldn't read a lick, so I didn't say nothing. And she buried her face in her hands silently, choked a little bit, clearing her throat, then pulled her face back up high looking into the palm of her hands, and said, Now, read the other. 
I opened the second letter. It's birth certificates, I said. Four altogether. Read all the names, she said. So I read them. The first was goats. It said Seymour Shays. Daddy named Irving Evans. Ma was Ruth Shays. The second was Minnie Jug's birth certificate. Same daddy and mama, Irving Evans' daddy, Ruth Shays' mama. The third was Tori. Same thing. And then there was a fourth, Irving Evans. I said, this last one, then I cut myself short for I seen something was wrong. I read it close then checked the dates. It wasn't no mistake. They was all brothers. Minnie Jug, Tory, Goat, and Irving Evans, the oldest, all born a couple of years apart. On Irving Evans' birth certificate, the father wasn't no chaise. It said colored. The space for mother was marked Ruth Shays. All brothers, or half-brothers, or something like that. And Goat had told me that his daddy, Mr. Popcorn's real name was Irving Evans. Mrs. Shays was looking at me as I looked at the papers. Does it look proper? She said. Oh, yes, ma'am. It looks proper, I said. Good. I gave her back the paper and went home. Maybe... It was a mistake, I thought. Maybe Irving Evans was a little Irving Evans and his real daddy was a big Irving Evans someplace else. Or maybe the white folks put Mrs. Shea's name on that birth certificate because one color looks like another in Kentucky. Maybe Irving Evans wasn't Mr. Popcorn. Maybe... Irving Evans died someplace and nobody brung him up on account of how he died. Later on, I thought to do the math and figure out who was who, but then I figured that's probably what Miss McIntyre already done, which is why she didn't want to see Mrs. Shays herself. I thought about that all the way home, about how Goat spent every morning for the past 10 years running behind Mr. Popcorn while Mr. Popcorn rode his bike to work running next to his brother who was also his father and his brother at the same time. And maybe that's what made Goat run so fast. Ladies and gentlemen, Trevor Exter! Well, now, y'all, it gives me great pleasure to bring to the stage the one, the only, the multi-talented Renaissance man. Please put your hands together for the author of today's story, Mr. James McBride.
Well, sir. Whew. That, that was wonderful, well, really. You. It was, it was extraordinary. Thank you. Uh, it's an extraordinary story. And I've, I've got to say, um, when I read the story the first time, James, and I got to the end and I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. I know black people got secrets <laughs> in their families. But I was so... I was so struck by how the tone of the story all the way through is so light and Butter is such a wonderful character and the way he describes his life and his friends and the events in his life is so lighthearted and comedic. And then at the end, I realized that this was exactly what Mrs. Shays had said. This was a tale about trouble. Well, uh, part of the part of the magic of of, of of fiction is that it allows you to uh, to explore innocence and and uh, and characters that that represent a, a community that you that you know and love, and, yeah. and it allows you to forgive people for their for their faults and their and their differences um, uh, without being um, judgmental. And so that's part of you know. Is are there some autobiographical elements in this story for you? Yeah, yeah, my mother's my brother. And, uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well played, uh, <laughs> sir. Well played. Um, uh, well, um, the story, th- this is one of, this short story is one of four in a novella. And this mm. is the last of the four and takes place in a town. It's based on a, a real place called Edenbourne, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my brother-in-law is from Edenbourne, Pennsylvania. And the, the coach, C. Vivian Stringer, who coaches Rutgers, is from uh, Edenbourne. And, and my brother-in-law used to talk about life in Edenbourne for this little, little black enclave. Actually, black and white people who were steel workers who lived together. Right. And, and, um, poor people. Poor folks, right? Yeah, yeah just poor folks, right. really. And... Um, and so some of this is autobiographical. I knew a kid who was super fast and right. was real country, and we used to call him, you know, we, we, he was very country. Um, and, and so a lot of these things, you know, were, are based on stories that happened to myself growing up in New York. Right. But there's no difference, really, between the, the bottom in New York, in Brooklyn or Queens, and, and the bottom in right. Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, right. or Atlanta, Georgia. Right. You know, it's the same story. Same story, same, same people, same struggles. Right. 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 But if we could talk for a moment about the reveal at the end. Well, that, that really was a hard thing to do. It was a hard way to, it was a really hard to, to put it that way. It hurt me to do it. But I had to, I had to create a scenario where Mrs. Shays, the story is really about Mrs. Shays. Yes. And and the, the dignity and nobility and honor of this character yes. is drawn out by this middle-class, semi-bourgeois teacher right. who's well-meaning. Well-meaning, but, but takes on more than, than she, she can than even she can imagine. Right. right. So I wanted to show the nobility and the, the honor and, and sort of the, because it's a privilege to know people like Mrs. Shays. Yeah, right. She just lives a life of honor with, with something that is really difficult to think about because she needed to do this for whatever reason. And who are we to judge? Right. So, right. It, but it was hard to write. I don't like writing that kind of, you know, stuff. You know, I mean, you got to do it sometimes. Yes. 
But, you know, you don't pull the trigger on something like that unless it really means something. Unless you really have to in order to serve the story. Right. Yeah. It was difficult to do, though, because particularly with poor people, poor, poor characters. When I say poor people, I mean people who are who we writers, we walk into their worlds and we put, you take advantage of them in ways and you show us all this kind of like dysfunction mm-hmm. when in the same level of dysfunction in some ways exists. Exists with, everywhere. With, yeah. Everywhere. At every level of society. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of disingenuous to go in and say, this is dysfunction where I'm living a life of perfection when it's not really true. No, it's not true for any of us. So I, you know, I respect the, the, the Mrs. Shays of the world. I love the Mrs. Shays. I've known the Mrs. Shays. I, don't, I can't recall anyone I knew who was you know, sleeping with their son, but you know, maybe it wasn't her son. Maybe, right. it, was, maybe it was someone else. Right. I, I mean, I've, I felt like I knew Mrs. Shays. I mean, like, I felt like she was so familiar to me, just her energy, the gravitas of her life, her dignity, as you said, I, I, I felt very close to Mr. Shea as a real kinship with that woman. Well, um, <clears throat> I once did a, a, a literacy. Miss Barbara Bush, the former first lady of the United States, does this literacy thing where she raises millions to, for, for literacy across the country. Mm-hmm. And I once did an event for her. And backstage, they had a mother who had been chosen to like represent the people who were, and she was a, a, a Hispanic woman, Latino woman. Mm. And when I saw her, I, I said to myself, like, that is Mrs. Shays, too. Mm-hmm. Because the whole business of being illiterate and the world being a, and the, the dignity and nobility of this woman, and also the ability of Mrs. Bush to talk to her with such just straight up and down talk. None of this, you know, none of this. Yeah, no, 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 no. Just two yeah. mothers talking. Right. Um, and that's really what, what drives a good writer, I hope, to write, or at least in me, in, the, in, the, in the sense that you know, you're always looking for the humanity in people. That's our job. Yeah. Our job, your job as an, as an actor, and my job as a writer, and Trevor's job as a musician, our job is to free people. Yes. We're supposed to free them. Right. And so we offer Miss Shays to this audience to, to, free, to free people, to let them know that it's okay. That you can't judge other people. That they're just, they're just like you. Yeah. It's a phenomenal story and indelible. Um, once you are exposed to it, it's a story that I don't believe you'll ever forget. Am I right? <laughs> I would be remiss if I, I, I didn't um, mention in our, our brief time here on stage together The Color of Water. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's my, uh, it's my, my calling card. I well, guess. it's some kind of card, sir. Well, uh, yeah, I, my, my mother died in, uh, in 2009, and it was, uh, it was uh, you know, my mother was a, a, a person who would, would knew many Mrs. Shays in her life. Right. She had been absorbed into the black community. And Your she, mother, for those who, who, who are not familiar with The Color of Water and, and, and James's own origin story, your mother is, was white. Was white, yeah. Polish uh, right, extraction. Polish, yeah, and, Polish Jew. And married your married father. Married my father in 1941. Man, and yeah. gave up her life as a white person, really, because she was absorbed, as you say, into the black community. Yeah, and, uh, and she, you know, she, she became a Christian, and uh, she was very... Uh, she was always very respectful and very uh, cognizant of, of uh, the good parts of, of African-American life. Mm-hmm. She was really, she was really, 
she really loved that part of black America, and, mm -hmm. I, and I loved that part of black America right. as well. Right. The good things that, and the, you know, of course we grew up in the church, and you know, all that stuff about the church. And sure. That's all autobiographical. Right. I, I'm still, you know, I still, still go to church, as flawed as it is, you know, it's still. Not only do you still go to church, you came here today from a church that your mother started. Yes. Right, yeah, my mother's church. Yeah. Your mother's yeah, church yeah, yeah, still, yeah, still. in Red Hook, New Jersey. Where Red, Red, Red Hook, Brooklyn. Red Hook, Brooklyn, yeah. where you still, to this day, give music lessons to underserved kids. Oh, uh, that's right. Except when I serve them, they ain't underserved. <laughs> <my God. laughs> Preach, brother. No, I mean... Preach. No, I mean, they're, right? they're, they're, they're kids from the projects. They're kids and, from the uh, projects. And they're just, they're wonderful kids, right. really. They're wonderful kids, right. and they keep it all. And and you know, I, I bring my son, my my children sometimes help me. I mean, I right. it's a, just a privilege to you know to to be able to uh, to give something back. I get so much out. Of, I wish I could, if I could quit writing, I would just do that. Really? Yeah, I like it that much. Be a music teacher. For, for well, kids. For, for kids for that kids. need it because yes. they you know there's so yes. much you know so much that we have in in this culture that kids don't know about. Right. And it's it's wonderful watching them you know, absorb it and, 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 and learn, you know, it's just a privilege, really. James McBride, it is a privilege to read your work. It is a privilege to talk about your work with you. It is a privilege simply to be in your presence. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. James McBride. LeVar Burton Reads is produced by Julia Smith. Editing is by Adam Dibert. And a big thank you to Matt Gorley and to everyone else who made our special live episode possible. That list includes our amazing cellist, Trevor Exter, for composing and playing the original musical score. You can find him at trevorexter.com. Thank you to Katie Freeman and all of our friends at Riverhead Books and to the engineers and staff at Now Hear This. And a special thank you to Mr. James McBride for allowing me to read his story and for our interview afterwards. The Story Goat is from James's new book of short fiction. If you enjoyed it, please look for the full collection as an audiobook entitled Five Carat Soul, narrated by Arthur Moray, Niall Bullock, Prentice Onayemi, and Dominic Hoffman. And if you love the podcast and you want to help other people find it, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And in that review, why not go ahead and suggest a story that you'd like to hear on season two of the podcast. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelette. And I'm LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at, at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time. But you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. I need to report an anonymous tip. This is regarding what? This is regarding a mass suicide. On March 26, 1997, in a San Diego mansion, 39 people were found dead. The occupants, it was said, seemed to belong to some kind of cult. They called themselves Heaven's Gate. 
Now, Sheriff, they had a leader, did they not, Marshal Applewhite? We came from distant space, and we're about to return. But the unanswered questions they left behind still linger. If I could believe that they were brainwashed, it would be easier to just blame the two. The largest mass suicide in American history is also one of the most misunderstood. I would appreciate it if this tape would be between us, okay? Bye-bye. Coming October 18th from Stitcher, in collaboration with Pineapple Street Media, Heaven's Gate. Hosted by me, Glenn Washington. Subscribe now on Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. To find out how you hear episodes one week early, ad-free, go to heavensgate.show.